0: Hello and welcome to OperaCast, your one-stop shop for the latest opera news, reviews, interviews and general chit-chat. My name is David Ward and coming up this month, Nixon in Glasgow, Opera Agony Ants and Revolving Doors in More Ways Than One at English National Opera. We're also doing a deep dive on opera in education, outreach and the community, including an interview with Izzy Pittman from the National Student Opera Society. Now, I'm delighted to be joined by this month's pod by Freya Wynne-Jones. How are you today, Freya? really well thank you how are you i'm very well thank you and where are you calling Good. us from today
1: uh, i'm down in sussex at the moment so i'm i'm based in brighton
0: we're going to kick off because there's so much to get through this month and we're going to start with the breaking news uh, which many of you may have already heard today that Daniel Kramer is stepping down from his role as Artistic Director of English National Opera. Kramer who joined three years ago has been part of a, a rather tumultuous time at the company which has seen kind of mixed critical and commercial success although it should be said there have been some great successes during his, his tenure including Akhnartan and Porgy and Bess from from last year. Uh, we've on the pod spoken a lot um, about the many new initiatives coming out of ENO around their attempts to diversify the company and bring through new audiences so it seems to be a rather difficult and slightly odd time for Kramer to be uh, leaving and for them to kind of be without that artistic leadership as they try and push through some of these new initiatives and um, also kind of rather odd timing as it comes just a few days after they announced their new season which we'll be talking about in a moment. Um, Frey, I mean w- what should we kind of make of this and, and what do you think the-, the type of person they should be looking at to take over from daniel given all these kind of new initiatives should be where should they be looking next
1: i mean i think yeah i think it's absolutely devastating news for for eno because daniel is absolutely amazing and has spearheaded some really wonderful work and really cares about every single element of uh of an opera house's functionality and who it should be Hmm. making work for so i think that's really that's really sad um but i also really understand his desire from from what the what it looks like from the kind of press release that's been released it looks as if he's decided to concentrate on his work as an as a director and I can imagine that the fun, that having to having to do all of the stuff that goes into creating a season and creating one at e that can be you know that comes with its with its pressures and its uh, its difficulties in planning uh, that Perhaps he's decided he just wants to get back to concentrating on being an artist, mm. but whether we'll hear more over the next few weeks, I don't know. And I guess in response to that, when you're thinking about who should be next, there is that interesting challenge, isn't there? When you're using fantastic directors who come in with so much vision, but how can you make sure they stay satisfied um, with all of the extra stuff and the whining and dining and all of the mm. stuff that comes mm. comes with? You know, planning an opera season and keeping an opera house afloat as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I know we we spoke to to Sean Edwards a couple of months ago, and obviously she was music director Ian O for a few years, and mm. I think there were a few other things going on with with Sean's appointment. But she said that that part of the job, the the whining, the dining, all of the planning, was was not for her, she wanted to be conducting, and that was kind of yeah. kind of the main reason for her leaving so you you're quite right that an artistic director of music director you know yes, it is about planning, it is about kind of taking the reins on the shows, but it 's about so much more as well and it 's just not it 's just not suited to everybody um i mean in terms of the type of person that might take over there was a lot of um kind of contention around his appointment because I think he'd only directed one or maybe two operas prior to to being appointed uh, i mean do you think that someone needs to have that real extensive hands-on experience to do a role like this what are your thoughts
1: um i suppose maybe uh, in a slight sense to know what you're letting yourself in for uh i wonder if there is i mean i know I, i think you've talked about this before but of course you know the the fast pace that you can find in the theater world compared to um some of the the way that the opera world comes and is put together and the way that productions work and actually whether um, better the devil you know, mm. in that sense, that that someone who's got a really um, strong operatic background uh, understands them all. But then I also think you get visionary people coming in by having people that don't necessarily know the tried and tested ways of working.
0: I mean, that's, that's certainly what they've done with the new CEO, Stuart Murphy. I think he was at, was he at Sky before he took over, I think, or yeah, I certainly, think certainly so. one, one of the big um uh television broadcasters so he's obviously coming with lots of new ideas and i say we, we've talked about them and we'll we'll mention some more later on today as well so it will be really interesting to see where they go i think what's what's clear though with all these new announcements is it is needs to be someone who is going to embrace these new sort of mm-hmm. accessibility and kind of diversity initiatives it's going to have to be someone that really um takes those on board and perhaps isn't so much focused on what's on the on the, the main stage but kind of what the company's trying to do more generally
1: yeah and and also and just forward thinking of using lillian baylor's house like they've done for some mm. of their smaller productions when they've been working with the gate theater with their effigies of wickedness all of that kind of really imaginative and interesting stuff that's that's been breathing some really exciting life into parts of the operatic kind of repertoire and the, the field more generally
0: absolutely so i mean best wishes to, to daniel he's certainly got a lot of opera directing gigs coming up including one at eno next season so uh, we've not heard the last from him in, in opera but perhaps the last from him as a as an ad um So moving on seamlessly to the announcement of English National Opera's 1920 season. Um, At the heart of it is a quartet of Orpheus operas which will be using a Rubik's Cube transformative set, which sounds both sort of bonkers and brilliant at the the same time. Um, So there's four Orpheus operas being Gluck, Offenbach, Burt Whistle and Philip Glass. Uh, there'll be a revivable, uh, revivable, a revival of the ever-trusty uh, Jonathan Miller Mikado, along with uh, Carmen and Marjorie Figaro, and then new productions of Louisa Miller, Madame Butterfly, and Rujalka. Uh Anything kind of uh, stick out there for you, Freya?
1: Um, I thought it was the Mengella production of the Butterfly that's coming back. Have I oh, got that it? wrong?
0: You, you, you might, you might be right. Um...
1: Because it's a beautiful production and I was pleased to see it was returning. I really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, so it's another um, one of those real mainstays, the Minghella, um mm, Butterflies. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I think it sounds like a really interesting thing. I think the Rubik's Cube sounds interesting. I mean, for me, uh, my background's in, in mainly in directing. And so to see um, Emma Rice coming on board to do mm. one of those pieces is really exciting. That's her e um, and debut. And also Wayne McGregor's company. Coming, you know he's coming on board as director and choreographer um which I just think again it just it really excites me I'm really excited to see what that becomes and I think that's one of the things e do is they really do try and innovate in these interesting uh teams and collaborations that they bring together um, yeah. to create work that goes so, so
0: beyond yeah, and so good to get those new kind of, as you say, kind of voices and perspectives. Because I think, mm-hmm. you know, you can, in, in any art form, but particularly opera, you get the same directors rolling around for, for decades and decades. And not just to say they don't do great work, but to bring in, as you said, people like Emma Rice, um, yeah. you know, like Wayne McGregor, really uh, amazing people in different fields to get their take on operas. is very exciting.
1: I think so. And, and, and for me, so excited to see um, what can be done you know emma rice such a fantastic director what can be done when she is given a go in an operatic space where will things uh, excite us where will there be disappointments where will things uh, stay the same where will they change where will they innovate where will they stagnate i just think that's a really um interesting thing to see when you're thinking about how opera can continue to shift when you're using fixed repertoire
0: mm, no absolutely and uh, you you're quite right it's the Minghella... Butterfly that's coming back and a new figaro directed by joe hill Gibbons um so yeah an interesting season there i am not sure what to make of this kind of quarter of Orpheus. Is. I don't know if that's uh maybe maybe one one too many for 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 my liking but um certainly interesting to kind of get the comparison between all of those different interpretations. Um, and we've already mentioned it once today, but great to see Sean Edwards returning to the Colosseum. She'll be conducting Offenbach's Orpheus as part of that quartet uh, of adaptations. Um, so a really interesting new season. I say it won't be without Daniel Kramer at the helm, um, but perhaps we might see a new artistic director come in. And, uh, and we, we said before about the kind of the the slow pace of change at opera houses. It won't be a few years until the new AD kind of stamps their artistic mark on, on the company. Um, yeah. But will be a really interesting and diverse season for someone to kind of get a grips of, of what they've got to play with. Eno, I suppose. Moving... And
1: Daniel is uh, is directing the Burt Whistle as part of that as well, which I think might add some continuity to that changeover.
0: Absolutely, and I think it's fair to say there's been a lot of uh, praise for them bringing back the Burt Whistle, which I think is the, the first time it's been brought back since its premiere. Um, so a lot of talk around um, that particular production. A lot of people are really excited to kind of see uh, that piece uh, back on the back on the stage again. Um, Moving up north, crossing the border to, to Scottish Opera, who have also announced their 1920 season, and very similar to Opera North's last month. It's uh, quite a, a limited kind of main stage programme, but real great variety in there. Some fantastic pieces I'll definitely be making the trip up north to see. Um, it opens with Tosca, uh, there's then Nixon in China, which I'll certainly be making the, the trip for. A Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, Gondoliers by Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, then the European premiere of Missy Mazzoli's uh, opera Breaking the Waves, uh, based on the uh, Lars von Trier film uh, based uh, up in Scotland. Um, And then there'll also be a semi-stage performance of Utopia Limited, another GNS show, one of the lesser-known, their penultimate collaboration. There'll be a series of opera concert performances, a new opera for uh, young children aged 12 to 24 months called Foxtot, which, again, I think that looks uh, fabulous from the promotional materials. I'll quite be keen to go and see that one myself. Um, Alongside a number of smaller-scale touring performances, um, dementia-friendly performances and audio-described performances, as well um so not quite kind of the same uh, amount of productions in that new season from scottish freya but um certainly some interesting choices particularly this utopia limited which i must say i've, I've never even heard of before so fascinating to see um some of the slightly uh, different weird and wonderful gns repertoire in there
1: yeah again not one i've heard of either so really exciting and i'm, I'm ashamed to say i've never made it to see a scottish opera production it's the complete opposite end of the country for me, but it's something. When again, the Nixon in China doesn't that doesn't that look great and exciting? Oh, yeah. With John Paul James directing that, I think that'll be really an interesting piece. And I just I just love how their um, community workers just build right next to their main season in their announcements. I think it's fantastic that they're celebrating that um, on the same level as they're celebrating their new season which is
0: great yeah and and i don't know whether um this is just kind of my perspective but looking at scottish and welsh they really do seem to take that mantle of being a national opera company very seriously Mm. i mean the main stage work tends to be centered on sort of edinburgh glasgow and, and and cardiff respectively for welsh but with the smaller scale projects they do, they really do kind of seem to have a great impetus to reach all parts of the country. I say in Scottish Opera's new season, there are quite a number of those smaller scale touring projects, which look to reach, you know, kind of all across um, what is kind of quite a, quite a big country to be served by that that one company. Um, so, yeah, I mean, certainly when you look at the season, brochure, you know, half of it's dedicated to the main stage and half to, to the rest of their activities, which I think is great to kind of see someone taking on that mantle in that way. Yeah,
1: I completely agree, and I think you're right. They've they've got a huge task. You know, parts of Scotland can feel just um, can feel so difficult for people to access different kind of elements of culture. And I think the fact that they're going out up and you know, I know that they go to Ullapool, they'll go to all of these different um, regions of Scotland, trying not to just be based in in the main uh, main cities. I think that's really admirable and wonderful. And um, and thank goodness they're doing that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so do head over uh, scottishopera.org.uk for the full season announcement. Um, we'll also have details in the show notes. Also announced just today is the BBC Proms programme for this summer. There'll be Glyndebourne's Magic Flute, conducted by Ryan Wigglesworth, Benvenuto Cellini, conducted by Sir John Elliot Gardner, and a Wagner Night, a celebration of the music of Richard Wagner, including a lot of Goethe with Christine Girk and Stephen Gould. And now, listener, if you'll indulge me, please, for one minute, Northern Opera Group have announced the details of the 2019 Leeds Opera Festival, which will run from the 23rd to the 27th of August. Themed around Shakespeare and opera, the headline production is Stanford's Much Ado About Nothing, which will take place at Morley Town Hall. There'll also be a new devised piece called Musical Confusion at Leeds Town Hall, which weaves together Shakespeare's original plays by the operas inspired by them. There'll also be a series of talks, discussions and events, including a live recording. Of Operacast here at Chapel FM. So do join us for that. It'll be free to attend um, and it's going to be a special festivals themed edition. So it'll be great fun. Do join us for that and for the rest of the festival. Details are online at northernoperagroup.co.uk. Improbable have just announced a three-year program of work called Future Sounds, which is looking at how opera can respond to contemporary issues. Now, it's something that we've spoken about before on the podcast, and something we mentioned earlier on today is is opera can seem quite a slow-moving form, difficult to respond to the pressing issues of the day. So I think a really interesting and necessary program that Improbable are going to be exploring. Uh, This Future Sounds program will include a new show about Mother Nature with Joyce DiDonato, Tower of Glass by Philip Glass, which is premiering this July at the Manchester International Festival, and also a large-scale community project in New York, inspired by Improbable's production of Akhnaten at the Met, um, which has also been Eno and, and other uh, companies as well. Um, they've got a Kickstarter project online at the moment, looking to raise some money in support of Future Sounds, and there are some amazing uh, benefits for backers um, for that. So if you like the sound of it, head over to improbable.co.uk um, to take a look at the Future Sounds programme, and if you so wish support the kickstarter and freya what your thoughts on this kind of uh thing about opera being kind of that sort of slow moving form difficult to to respond i mean how well do you think opera um kind of can respond to those issues of of the day certainly compared to to other art forms
1: i think in the large houses it's almost impossible because of course people are programming so far in advance there's very little ability to be reactive and and I think really if you want if you want to use the canon to respond to the things that are, that matter in contemporary society you need to know what the issue is and then find the opera that's going to tell that story
0: yeah absolutely. not the other way around absolutely i think we see so many times people get the opera and shove something onto it and it, yeah, <laughs> it's a mess <laughs> it's
1: just really shoehorned, and, and best will in the world because i can imagine you know people are so desperate to be able to communicate and to and to engage with what's happening in the kind of political world or again with these things that just have contemporary resonance and and it just can be so difficult to do that when you've got cosy and that's what you're working with
0: (laughs) so it looks as though improbables way to to sort of uh, broach the subject is to create uh, smaller scale sort of new pieces but also i'm interested in this this large-scale community project in in new york which is all around their production mm. of act so kind of taking that okay it's not core rep but existing work and actually kind of looking at how we explore things in and around it not by necessarily just staging a new production but actually how do we involve the community in being able to engage with that work in different ways Um seems mm. like a great way of sort of trying to um get some of these issues into opera and also kind of get people to to engage with opera in a in a new way
1: well, I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but of course, that's uh, that's my background. That's the work that I do um, with Opera Education Departments. And I'd say the Akhnartan production, the images that you see mm-hmm. are actually based on an E&O, uh, uh, an E&O outreach piece that the Baylis team set up on Akhnartan, uh, working with Improbable, that was at the, I think it was at the British Library a few years ago. So... I think it's fantastic i love that they've seen how that can work and are now going to take that somewhere else um and explore how it can go further um and i I completely agree with you there are so many things in opera that are relevant to people today and that can be explored it you've just got to have the freedom to pull them out and and take them where they need to go Mm. and that's what this this new opportunity sounds like it's going to do which is fantastic
0: Now, we mentioned the nominations last month. This month, we've had the winners of the Olivier Awards. The Best New Opera Production was won by Kaccha Kabanova at the Royal Opera House, and the Outstanding Achievement in Opera was awarded to the Ensemble of Porgy and Bess at English National Opera. The International Opera Awards are coming up in a couple of weeks' time, and I believe that tickets are still available, so head over to their website to snaffle those final few tickets. Should be an amazing night. The composer Ellen Reed has won the Pulitzer Prize for music for her opera, Prism. It was premiered at LA Opera in November 2018, and it tells the story of a mother and child in the aftermath of a traumatic event. Previous winners of the Pulitzer Prize include Monotti for The Consul and also for his opera The Saint of Bleecker Street, uh, Samuel Barber for Vanessa and Robert Ward's The Crucible. Um, so a really prestigious award. Congratulations to Ellen for winning the prize. You can head over to her website at ellenreedmusic.com to listen to some of the opera. It's a fascinating work and such an amazing staging by uh, Beth Morrison Project. So I do hope at some time we might have opportunity here in the UK to see Prism. Uh, if you've been fortunate enough to see the opera, do get in touch and let us know what you think. You can contact us on Facebook, Twitter, and also by email at info at operacast.co.uk. And to end our news roundup, the Opera and Music Theatre Forum, the membership organisation for opera companies around the UK, have announced this year's Love Opera Weekend, which will take place on the 3rd and 4th of May. Companies large and small are encouraged to join in by talking about their new productions, the rehearsals, things that you've recently had going on, anything to do with opera that celebrates opera, post it on social media, tag hashtag Love Opera on the 3rd and 4th of May to create a UK-wide celebration of the art form in all of its glory. For more information, visit the OMTF website or find them on Facebook and Twitter. Now, before we move on to the meteor segment of today's podcast, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your favourite podcast platform. If you're listening through our website, then please keep doing so. Uh, But you might like to know that you can also find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Acasts, and probably some other platforms as well that I haven't heard of before. Um, So search for OperaCast and make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. It's the best way for us to find new audiences. And thank you to all of those of you who've done so already. Now, perhaps the most contentious talking point in the opera world over the past few weeks has been comments by the Deputy Chief Executive of the Arts Council, Simon Meller, Talking about their funding priorities for the coming years, he said that relevance is becoming the new litmus test. It will no longer be enough to produce high quality work. You'll need to be able to demonstrate that you are also facing all of your stakeholders and communities in ways that they value. So relevance over quality. Um, is kind of the the, the kind of the, the the buzz phrase that's going to be heard, I'm sure, again and again over the next few years. Uh, now it's fair to say that most of the responses, um, certainly online, to this have not been uh, positive. Um, uh, lots of people really taking um, taking against this uh, kind of idea of relevance kind of uh, being put above quality. Um, I wonder, Frey, if I'm one of the very few people who actually. Um, understands and sympathizes with with Simon's point. Um, not that I'm against high quality work, but surely in an environment where funding is uh, more and more competitive and there's less of it, uh, an opera is really trying to find ways to get through to new audiences that, yes, we have to keep the quality of the work there, but surely we, we have to be testing ourselves as to being sure that what we're doing is relevant um, and that actually responds to where we're doing it and, and when we're doing it and why we're doing it, uh, as well as just kind of wanting to do the same things over and over again. What are your thoughts?
1: I have to say I'm with you um, on this. I think when I I, I... I can understand where people's fears come from, Yeah. but when I read the announcement, there was a part of me that was really relieved and delighted. And I think that's because... Um, it's too easy to just allow people to make mindlessly and mm. and i again i'm i'm one of these people where the majority of my life is spent telling people that opera is for them and that opera is something that they can enjoy and engage with and i think when you then go and see a production and it's just utterly alienating because there is a difference of course between you know engaging work You know, it can be engaging and feel relevant because it resonates in another way. We're not saying everything has to be pinpointable to your life and your, you know, socioeconomic status. Or you know, that there. It's just, it's just saying that the arts is meant to serve everybody. And I think it's too easy for a small group of people in a very small circle to just keep creating work for the same people that have been coming to it for a long time. And maybe tr- I sometimes think trying to keep those walls erected around uh, the operatic world, which a few of us are definitely chipping away at from the outside. So um, I understand how you could read it and how those readings could make you feel frightened and uncomfortable. But I also think there's some really um, well-intentioned thought behind it, um, and also when we're thinking about the fact that the Arts Council is being, you know, whittled away um, constantly, I I think I would I admire the fact that they have chosen to make sure that they keep their uh, their funding going to people that are trying to make a difference in the in the wider scheme of things.
0: Yeah. Let's talk a bit more broadly then about kind of uh, relevance. And you've mentioned a few times kind of opening up opera to new audiences, which is what a lot of your work has been about. Um, I'd like to kind of start with just a very brief sort of um, terminology session. We we band around education, outreach, community, all of these sorts of words. Um, And certainly all of the major opera companies, all of their departments in this way are all kind of, uh, they've all got different terms and different ways of describing themselves. I mean, how do you kind of see the work that that you do and do you kind of have any distinctions as to what education might work might be what sort of outreach might be can we kind of come up with some definitions so we kind of know what we're talking about
1: yeah i think you're totally right we use a lot of kind of buzzwords and and really i think um and i think there's a lot of different ways of doing things and a lot of different op houses do have slightly uh, differing approaches to that i think uh there's about making work that's for Uh, community groups or with community groups whether that's in schools or in your local ESOL center or refugee um, center of the Red Cross similarly um, community choruses all of these kind of different different groups that you can be making work with I mean opera education we I think that term's um, becoming more and more redundant actually I think you can be an opera educator but um, education implies that there's total learning outcomes which and I think it's actually more about getting an opportunity to experience and mm. question rather than go home with a takeaway of what you've learned that day. Um, outreach, yeah, was was designed to think about going to communities that would otherwise not be participating in opera as an audience. Um, and I think now quite often learning and participations used a lot as mm. well think participation again being giving giving people an opportunity to to step inside that operatic world but also I think you can be participating with opera by by engaging with it as an art form for the first time whether your audience or whether you're um whether you're doing a bespoke project.
0: I'm really interested by this idea of kind of participation and attendance so on one hand it's getting people involved in in making opera or, or singing or that kind of side of things and the other is getting people into a house to see work do you see those as kind of being two very different things with different outcomes or is there somewhere that kind of participation and attendance is, are sort of two sides of the same coin
1: i think that the, the dream although not an expectation some people might do a fantastic might have a fantastic experience with you might really enjoy what you teach them about opera but still find going to watch a a wagner just something that they're not interested in doing not not engaging enough not you know not giving them enough of what they need um i think one of the things is that depending on how a company do it i think for a while there was a tendency to see outreach work Um, As just audience development, Mm. which is, um, you know, savvy, but um, hollow, I think Mm. Uh, it's we do need to be thinking about how we keep audiences engaging with opera. We want you know, we believe that it's a great art form and we believe that people um, can find something in it that really um, appeals to themselves and really resonates with them and their their sense of personhood we believe in that um so there may well be the idea that some of them do become opera goers and do find that they can do it and then there are other examples where I think you're trying to prepare people for their first opportunity to opera. I think there still can be so many barriers for people to step into an opera house if you're growing up in kind of Dagenham, Brixton, Whitechapel, some of the places I'm running workshops you've never stepped inside a theater and then the first thing you do is step into the coliseum that can be such an intimidating experience for some people and so alien and i think everything that you can do to give people insight to give them a way to feel at home in that space mm. which is what a lot of a lot of our participation things are doing it's preparing people to go and see an opera by giving them the insights the skills letting them reflect and question and challenge the things that they want to challenge about it before they go in, while they're watching it and afterwards. Um, And I think when people feel free to do that, feel free in that space, feel free to be critically reflective um, and realise that just because you don't like one opera doesn't mean you're never going to like any opera. I think that's a really liberating and freeing thing for people, gives them a bit more ownership over their um artistic experience
0: mm. that, that's one of the things that i always think that we kind of struggle with as a as a sector that some of the arguments people make seems to be or just just kind of get people into the opera house and they'll love it and it's it's trying to give people that message as you said that you might go and see one thing and then hate it but there's lots <laughs> there's lots more out there um it's trying to get people away from kind of that yeah that having that one you know inspiring first visit which i mean certainly for me the first opera i saw I remember it was Don Giovanni. I don't remember anything about it. And certainly, it was a few years until I saw (laughs) another one. You know, there's no kind of magical um, elixir. Um, It was interesting what you were saying there that, you know, sort of some companies see these programs as audience development and and nothing else. And certainly, I used to work for a large organization, uh, not in opera, but in the arts. And that's. That was what the education program was all about. It was all about developing audiences for the future. Um, however, from what you were saying there, even with kind of the, uh, the the workshops and participatory stuff, there does seem to be quite a strong element of wanting to get people into an opera house to kind of see that that main stage stuff. Do you, when you work on these projects and people commission you to be part of them, is that often what that sort of long-term outcome is is supposed to be?
1: I think quite often there is an opportunity at the end of it for people to see the real deal, to go and see it in full costume with, you know, yeah, in that space to see a full length piece, Um, which can be life changing for people. Um, And it also can be the most tedious three hours of their life. Um, (laughs) It can really depend. And I think, um, I think it's a really, I, I, I think it's important, it's important to respect the the canon there's some beautiful work there and we believe you know when it's done well it's intoxicating um so i think it's about letting people know that that world exists for them and also there are other ways to think about creating new works of opera which again is why phelan's work is is really exciting to hear that that's what they're going to be doing mm. moving forward we just need more of it it's brilliant
0: mm. and what are those ways then when you're working as a, as a practitioner that you can kind of get get people into opera, get them kind of in, involved or the kind of various you know, kind of things that you you do to kind of open up that world to, to first-time uh, participants and audiences?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I work with all different different ages um, as well. So it will be a very different approach for adults, as it will for for children and teenagers. I think ultimately, for me, it is about finding where this piece has opportunity to resonate with people today. I think that is really important to identify what the approaches are that have been taken by the director or just trying to think about what's the catch for people. I mean, so many operas are just like Hollyoaks. And for teenagers, you can usually just tell them about some of those storylines and that will be a great way to hook them. But also, I think young audiences today want to want to be working out how they can make a difference. They want to be thinking about subjects they wish they could change. So when, you, you know, I just did a lovely workshop last summer with Garsington on their production of Magic Flute. And with those young people, we were talking about, um, we worked in an all-girls all school one of the days, and we were just talking about the relationship between... Um, Daughters and mothers and what that's like when you suddenly realise, you know, that your mother is unable to care for you in the way that you want her, her to, that she's un- potentially desperately unwell following the death of uh, of Permina's father, that, you know, there's all of this stuff going on. And I think young people want to talk about those kind of issues and that can be a way into the opera. And that's when I think it can be disappointing if you then go and watch a production that is not seeking to say anything, rele- mm. yeah, relevant mm. or
0: current. And did you think opera kind of uniquely as an art form struggles for first time audiences? Because I mean, a lot of the work you do obviously is kind of almost preparing people to kind of take the step into the theatre. Is opera particularly poorly placed at kind of being welcoming to new audiences? Because a lot of the time, you you do need to kind of have that understanding of the piece before you go in.
1: I think uh, you're going to watch something often in a different language so or if you're listening to an English translation you're having to get used to uh, things like melismas Mm -hmm. the first opera I ever saw was on jagen at and and I thought why on earth are they singing those words in such a funny way (laughs) I was doing a project yesterday um, with the the British Red Cross and, and and I was just playing them some opera and a little girl said to me why are they singing in gibberish and I was like actually they're singing in Russian you know she had no idea that operas would be sung in a language that she wasn't familiar with and um and I think that that's one of the things it's letting them know letting them know you're not meant to clap um letting them know that you're not meant to take um a can of pop in and crack it during you know there's all of this kind of etiquette in the opera house which has come from years of uh of, of not routine but years of building up a way that we want the opera house to feel and that's come from wanting people to feel like a night at the opera is really special but if you are coming into that space for the first time you're an outsider and you don't know the rules and I think that can be really really difficult and challenging especially as a lot of audiences expect you to know them
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, we've spoken before that a lot of opera's gatekeepers, audiences included, um, tend to make life a little bit difficult for for for, for new people. But um, we won't go down that that rabbit hole again, <laughs> again, again today. Um, I mean, th- th- it's interesting. One of the points we we're going to talk about earlier is is this kind of uh, theme of booing, which has been discussed recently as well. That kind of Stuart Murphy again at, at Eno is, has sort of said that he doesn't mind it, and, and Patricia Barden, says that she thinks it's a job well done when people boo her, her you know, Um I mean, is is that sort of again the sort of thing that you kind of come across as one of the behaviours that is is uh, kind of looked looked down upon within the, within opera?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I might have done a project with a group of young people, and then there is always a slight fear if we're going to them watch an opera that I feel protective of them, and um, and they they are totally in it. Like they're booing because they're absolutely engaged and loving it um, and they're gasping when there's a snog on stage and they're screaming at things, you know, that's, that's them actually showing that it matters to them. And that's mm. a job well done. I agree with, with Patricia Bard and I, like, you know, I understand um, why other people don't like it, but it, there is, I mean, I was thinking about this idea of booing and you know, I, I went to a panto at Christmas, I haven't been to one in years and It's one of the only types of art that a lot of families will bring their children to. Like, the audience was so diverse.
0: Mm.
1: So many people from all different walks of life that somehow find that a safe space to go and enjoy the arts in. And, yeah, who tells people that they're not allowed to boo? And who explains why? And who teaches people that they should boo in panto, but not anywhere? You know, it's... I just think how are people meant to learn the, these rules? Because they are unspoken.
0: Yeah, and that's really interesting as well. I've not thought about that before, but maybe one of opera's issues is that it, it's not a very participatory art form. You know, In musicals, after every number, you you clap and you're encouraged to cheer and that sort of thing. In opera, you're very much not. So again, as someone kind of coming in, even a season go, you do feel very distant from it in a way because you you know so much of the expectation is you sort of sit there and, and lap it up for a couple of hours and then there's an interval. Um I don't know whether there might be something in that sort of non-participatory nature of being an audience member, let alone kind of actually taking part itself, that actually might be difficult for people trying to to engage with it.
1: Yeah, I think I definitely experienced that. When, I mean, I I was I was involved in a youth opera company. I was in Glyndebourne Youth Opera Group when I was a kid. That's how I discovered opera. I'm from a you know raised in a I was in a went to a state school in Eastbourne. Had never heard about opera before. Happened to be lucky enough to be invited to be part of this youth opera. Um, and really throughout my kind of teenage years, I was I was mainly into theatre. Um that was something that felt a lot easier. And you'll write in theatre they break the fourth wall occasionally or they'll just they'll do things like they'll surround you, they'll ask they'll suddenly ask you to interact. They'll they'll push the boundaries of, of participation. And I think, I mean, I remember kind of being twenty one and going to operas and not knowing the rules and wanting to clap and being told being told very specifically not to and then of course someone does get a clap after fantastic aria and you think well why are we clapping now and Mm, uh should i be clapping should i stop quickly i think i i show far less appreciation than i feel in my heart when i watch opera than in any other art form it's like we just suppress it
0: yeah absolutely i I mean as you said you've you've worked on All sorts of amazing projects in in all sorts of parts of the the country. I mean, if there's kind of one thing that you could do, if you could wave a wand, what's kind of the one change you'd want to to see either within the the sector or kind of culture more broadly to get more people to to engage with opera that would open up um, opera to more people?
1: That's a really good question. I... I think we've talked a lot about how I love to prepare people for going into to watch operas for the first time. And that is really important. But the other thing I really, really am passionate about is letting people know that they can become the makers. And I think that's what's so vital, is letting people know that they can become the next generation of opera makers. And that can be through a non-traditional route. And that can be done in a non-traditional way it doesn't have to be you know people should become opera makers um and do whatever the hell they want that they think is going to make a difference i would suppose my biggest thing is it breaks my heart going to a place that is more rural um that's often seen as culturally um deprived i'm doing kind of quotation marks around that yeah. which is a, a horrible word but an arts council word that's often used and i think um I think leaving those areas after a project where you can see children have had that aha moment, which I was so lucky to get. And I was so lucky that there was a place where I could then go and follow that up. And I think leaving kids and knowing there is no follow up is heartbreaking. Mm. And I think it's also the fact that, you know, education has not got time for the arts anymore. It's been decimated in schools and, um, If I could solve that, I would absolutely um, do that because young children, there are so many young children, whether they're in cities, I mean, in cities you're more connected. I think rurally there are so many young children who have no one there helping them realise that the art could be the way that they communicate with the world. I did a project for Snappy Operas with Mahogany Opera Group last year and the number of times in one week where teachers said to me that a child was low ability... Oh, that child's low ability. It's so great to see them coming out of their shell and excelling so much. And for me, that child was the highest ability artist in the room. And I think that that's um we're kind of we're not giving it a chance to blossom when it needs to. Hmm. When there's just no there's no room for the arts, um, or not enough room for the arts in in rural communities and in and in schools. And if I could fix that, I think we'd see our operatic world thriving and diversifying and becoming quite magic.
0: Well, that sounds like a very good wish to have. Um, Now, one of the most significant breeding grounds for new audiences after school are universities. Um, Just a few months ago, the National Student Opera Society was set up and already has members right across the UK, as well as partnerships with some of the country's leading opera companies. Early this month, I spoke to Izzy Pittman from the Society about what they do and the state of opera in universities in general. (laughs) Well, hello, Izzy. Thank you very much for joining us for Operacast.
2: No, no worries at all.
0: So, first of all, tell me about the National Student Opera Society. What is it that you do?
2: So, basically, we are a newly founded society aimed at challenging the perceptions of opera and opera's engagement with young people by extending opportunities and access to all sorts of young people across the UK, regardless of their background or their financial means and The aim is to essentially allow everyone access to the incredibly exciting art form that is opera.
0: And when we're talking students, are we talking universities or does your remit sort of go beyond that at all?
2: So, yeah, our our remit goes uh, to 16 to 30 year olds, which kind of encompasses most of what people would term youth, I guess, which can be universities. It can be people who are not related at all just anyone who is interested and young and you know if a 14 year old wants to be involved then we're not going to say no.
0: So with the society and I know there are various sort of opera societies at different universities that kind of put shows on. Is is your aim to kind of bring all of those sorts of groups together or do you kind of have a wider remit to kind of get through to students more broadly?
2: Yes so the society is basically working on a number of levels. We are affiliated with I think, 17 university opera societies. And the idea is to kind of centralise the opera societies that already exist. So it will allow us a bigger reach and allow them to access the resources that hopefully we will have in the fullness of time. So those 17 university opera societies already put on things, they do events, you know, they've already achieved a lot. But our idea is to essentially centralise some of the resources and ideas and opportunities so that they can then you know if they have problems with funding or with you know they're not quite sure how to go about putting on an opera perhaps if it's a new society we'll be able to help them out
0: yeah i was was going to say it sounds fantastic and you've done some kind of great things in such a short space of time and as you said you've you've connected with lots of different societies across Mm -hmm. the country do you get kind of the general sense that that the opera is is quite well alive in in universities is it oh, quite yeah. spread out across the country
2: yeah absolutely it really is everywhere from you know Aberdeen to Exeter to all the no loads and loads of london ones you know it's it's everywhere um northern Ireland too and dublin you know really all over um you know they they're developed to different extents, and something that we have noticed is that the Opera societies that are perhaps from the more, you know, stereotypically illustrious or prestigious universities, perhaps are more developed because they have more of a historic connection to, you know, wealth and opera. But newer universities really are making an absolutely tangible effort to create new societies, to get new people involved, who perhaps formerly wouldn't have had the access to opera that they do now. So... Absolutely, it is very much alive and well in the student population. It's just that, with media coverage as it is of opera, that kind of gets overlooked in favour of oh, seven thousand pound tickets. You know,
0: <laughs> mm. yeah. Which I know, yeah, we've been guilty of covering as well. It's um, yeah. I think oh, well, It, we it is interesting. Is, <laughs> it is interesting, and it, it, but it's very true. You know, every time opera gets into the mainstream press, it's always because something cultural and elitist has happened you know we never kind of get to hear about these stories so the more we can do to to shout about those the better i think yeah i'm I'm really interested in this 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 thing between the more established societies and some of these newer ones i mean uh do do you kind of tend to find that they're that they're all sort of doing similar things are they all sort of putting on the same sort of productions or is there do you do you find there's a bit of a difference between the more established ones and the newer ones at all
2: i I don't believe there's much of a difference in the operas that are being put on. I think perhaps the more established ones have more funds and therefore can, you know, do slightly more complex productions, things with bigger orchestras, and can maybe recruit people from outside the university so they can do repertoire that is not for just young voices, which is obviously Mm. one of the big constraints of youth opera. But overall, you know, the classics are still performed very widely, no matter where it is, because they are suitable and they are accessible, and you can sing them in English. And these are all very attractive things to opera groups.
0: Um, now, now I know that professional opera provision is is obviously quite patchy across the UK. Mm-hmm, I mean, how mm-hmm. can those students at universities where there isn't much, if, if any, professional provision, to sort of go along and see, kind of, um, yeah. get get engaged with with opera?
2: Yeah. Well. So what our aim is, is, I mean, we basically have three branches to the society. We have events, which will be careers, talks, opportunities to meet people in the industry, you know, for people who are either considering a career in the opera industry or are just very interested and perhaps haven't had the opportunity to hear, you know, people actually in the industry talk about it. So that's our first branch basically and we hope that our events will be completely free in time and that we will try as best as we can to you know space them around the uk so it's not Mm. just london centric and i found that you know a lot of the provision for opera is centered on you know london and the south and really if you look at the opera societies throughout the uk and opera companies in fact It really is very much spread. And, you know, you can't concentrate all your efforts on the South because there are so, so many people and universities in the North and wonderful companies like Opera North and Scottish Opera who do a really great job. And I think a lot of what we're trying to do is, you know, allow there to be events and things for people to do all over the UK, not just in London. Because, you know, if you live in Edinburgh, it's going to take six hours to get down to London it's just not feasible so to mm. be able to utilize the resources that there are all across the UK will be incredibly beneficial to people who want to get involved in opera but do not have easy access to London
0: um so if Vince is you see you kind of have three strands events is one of yes. them what, kind of yes yes the, the other two
2: so the second strand is basically networks. so you know it's really beneficial to build a community of young people who like opera and then interlink that community with the industry. You know, it makes sense that opera companies would want to talk to young people, and young people who are interested would want to talk to opera companies. So, the idea is that we will create networking events as well as a sort of internal network. Currently, we have a Facebook group which has, I think, around 350 members. And it just allows people to, you know, say, oh, if I'm doing a production in Leeds, post about it. Perhaps people would be keen to come along. You know, it just creates a community of people asking questions, answering questions and just increases the dialogue surrounding opera. Third Strand is a comprehensive list of resources that will be on our website, which is currently in development, soon to be released. So these resources will include everything from advice on careers in the opera world to information about ticket schemes designed to make opera more affordable. Um, and what we have found is that there are lots of schemes, whether that be for people who are aspiring to be in the profession or for people who just want to go to operas, but perhaps can't afford the you know, extortionate ticket prices. So the idea is that we will create a kind of comprehensive list for different groups of people, whether they just want to see them or want to be involved in the industry, of opportunities and ways that they can get involved. So the resources will essentially allow there to be one particular place where people can go to and they can really see a list of all the ticket schemes in the UK. And it will just make Mm. it easier for people to access.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of companies that that do have these, you know, schemes for students or under 30s or 35s. I mean, do you, do you think those sorts of schemes kind of do enough to encourage students to, to go to the opera is is a reduced ticket uh, yeah. in off of a kind of an offer?
2: I think the fundamental problem with engagement in opera is that it is one's attitude to opera and the way that one interacts with opera is defined so young and so early on in a person's life that it's very difficult to change. Attitudes. It's not just about financial capital. It's about cultural capital and whether you've been brought up with a culture of opera going or whether opera is seen as something that is essentially completely unachievable. And though financial schemes, such as ticket schemes, can be an absolutely wonderful asset, it's far deeper set, far more ingrained in you know, just general culture, the the engagement needs to come at an earlier level and it needs to engage people in not purely financial ways. That's my opinion. Um, and I think what opera companies can do is to basically transform the way that they exist, or the way that their culture is formed into something that is more neutral and more open. And I think what the Royal Opera House have, done with their open up project is really excellent they've transformed a space from somewhere that's you know seen as the sort of bastion of the elite to something Mm. where people can just drop it in and out and i think that is a, a really good step in the right direction you know so much of it is about this ingrained stereotype and anything that a company can do to counteract that culturally is really really vital
0: And I mean, we've talked on the pod a lot about sort of cinema screenings and and things like that. Do you think those kind of things have a a role to play as well?
2: I think they do, especially if you can't access Royal Opera House or The Mets or, you know, they screen from all over the world and that is fantastic. But, you know, the problem with them, again, because it is a costly thing to do, they are very expensive. You know, if you go to the cinema Mm. to see a blockbuster film, it perhaps, of course, £7, but to see a Met broadcast, I mean, definitely over 20 which is, you know, for a cinema screening, perhaps more than some people would wish to pay. But I think, in general, you know, making more people aware that opera is on offer and allowing more people to see more productions is never a bad thing.
0: Absolutely. Um, now, I see that you've kind of launched a number of partnerships with, with professional yes. companies yeah. recently. Um, how, how is it that you look to kind of work with professional companies what do you offer them what do you mm-hmm. want in return
2: yeah so essentially what we're aiming to do is to develop firstly verbal links with the companies so they endorse us and we endorse them and that's a big part of how we're getting started up you know the more companies that are established that can support us whether that just be through a little bit of endorsement on social media it makes a really big difference then what we're aiming to do once we have some sort of affiliation with a company is to start to develop you know events and ideas for what we can do in the future to come up with you know exciting opportunities for young people um, and thus far we've got two things planned we've got Water Perry Opera Festival coming up on the 25th of July we have an exciting program of events on that day going to see some of their operas and talking to various creatives as part of a panel in addition to a networking event in the interval and we've also recently met with opera holland park who are very you know one of the front runners for uh, engagement with opera in and mm. social inclusion diversity etc and they are going to be offering a program of events for the people who are a part of Ensos, which will be announced shortly.
0: And I, I assume you've, you've you've reached out to more companies than have been announced so far. So what has the yeah. response generally been from companies? Has it been quite positive? Have you, have you been able to get a lot of those conversations yes. started?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the response to my way of thinking has actually been quite remarkable. I did not realize the extent to which they wanted to reach out to young people. So many companies, and I I haven't spoken to all of the companies in the UK by any means, but the ones I have spoken to have been really, really complimentary and keen to work with us. I think they realize how it is absolutely fundamental that they engage with young audiences to be able to maintain their audiences in the future. And Mm. what we're aiming to do is to create a bridge between the people who we can easily speak to as young people and them. So I think they see it as an opportunity to be able to reach new audiences. And we obviously see it as an opportunity to partner with absolutely fantastic companies who really provide absolutely top quality opera, um, which is very exciting.
0: Yeah, well, that's good to hear. Um, Let's briefly talk about um, the money side of things. You've mentioned that, you know, you kind of hope to have all your events free um i mean is is your plan going forward that everything's kind of run out of the goodness of everyone's hearts or is there kind of a a financial model or thought in place to how this you know kind of grows from here on in
2: i think what would be wonderful for us is that the events held by opera companies would essentially be out of the goodness of their own hearts but perhaps individual speakers who you know they're professionals You don't want to not pay them. So what we're aiming to do is gain some funding that will be able to be used to create events with people who are, you know, (laughs) they're true professionals. You pay professionals. That's the way it goes. So what we're hoping Mm. to do is balance things, you know, between people essentially giving things and us being able to pay for more, you know, exclusive events, if you you will.
0: So you're not necessarily looking at Individual societies to, to pay a membership fee or getting proper no, no, companies to, not. to chip in? No, no.
2: We, I, I don't think at the stage we're in there's there's a necessity for any sort of paid membership. If you're aged between 16 and 30, that's all we care about and <laughs> it will be open to anyone.
0: Do you kind of get a sense that students are more open to uh, new operas and perhaps different ways of kind of presenting work than perhaps older audiences are or is that
2: I think is that a bit of
0: a stereotype
2: I in my experience I think it is perhaps a it's a combination of both it is a bit of a stereotype I think from people I've met and what I've read etc it is more about the culture that you've been brought up in as to how you respond to different types of opera you know, if you've been socialized in a way that your parents take you to the opera and they're very set on there being traditional productions, you're far more likely to be keen on traditional productions, no matter whether you're 50 or whether you're 18. I think perhaps people who've come to opera slightly later through different routes, maybe, either through conventional theater or through musical theater, are perhaps more open to a different way of presenting opera which is unsurprising um, but I think it's more cultural than it is age based
0: and, and so far I think it's fair to say that most well it, you know kind of the vast majority of singers and even you know kind of directors and certainly conductors come through conservatoires do you think that mm-hmm. there is is room within sort of the wider university sector to get more people uh, kind of professionally going into the art or do you still mm-hmm. see sort of conservatoires as being very much the, the bastion of kind of um, entry into the profession?
2: Yeah, so I think it really depends what part of the profession you're aiming to go into. If you want to be a singer, basically the the way that the industry works is that you go to conservatoire and there's a relatively prescriptive route. Obviously, there are exceptions, but you need to have the training that will allow your voice to be sustainable throughout the rest of your life. And often that comes from a relatively intensive training at conservatoire but something like going into production, you know, you might be at a normal, not normal, but a, a, an academic based university and you might have put on 10 productions, 10 operatic productions. And I, I don't think anyone could say that going to conservatoire is going to give you more experience than that. And I think that universities really can be an absolutely key way of getting people involved, even if they do go on to conservatoire. The skills that you can develop by creating things on your own uh, is remarkably useful for, you know, your entire career. And at university, you have the capacity to create opportunities, to create a society, to run an opera. And I think it is just really important that that is cultivated and that people understand that there is a career out there. Of course there is. And it's about finding finding the correct or the route for you to get there
0: and And finally, if you could wave a, a magic wand, what would kind of be the one thing that would change you know either within the sector or or culturally that would encourage Ooh. more students to get involved with opera
2: It's very difficult if there was one thing I think if the culture was seen as more accessible, a whole world of problems would be removed for the industry. I really do believe that the portrayal of elitism is the big barrier you know if people feel like they can't access something they won't regardless of financial means and it's to me the the culture that is something that's prohibiting new audiences and maintaining the elite values that you know are so much of a problem for gaining new audiences and if i could do one thing i guess it would be to remove the idea of elitism and to just treat it like any other (laughs) art form.
0: Izzy Pittman, thank you very much indeed for joining us and all the very best with the Society.
2: Thank you very much.
0: You can find the National Student Opera Society on Facebook and Twitter if you want to get involved. And thank you very much to Izzy for joining us this month. Now, we've spoken earlier about how to get people uh, into the Opera House, um, and one of the things that we haven't often talked about is the actual uh, physicality of getting people into the Opera House and how that can put people off. Uh, Stuart Murphy, Chief Executive of English National Opera and favourite talking point on OperaCast, um, has spoken about some of the audience surveys they've been getting recently, and apparently they've been getting a lot of feedback that the doors into the building are excluding to people that they're um, heavy um, and that they're a rather kind of domineering force at the heart of the Coliseum. Now, with a lot of the building work they're doing at the moment, they're looking at different ways to kind of break down some of these physical barriers to getting people into the space, um, including putting sort of uh, Perspex glass uh, entrances before the doors and and all sorts of various things that they can do. what what kind of things can we do with physical space to make arts venues more inviting i mean we've had things like the royal opera houses open up project recently and um, they now have sort of a public cafe area whether there are lots of people going into that cafe who are not opera fans <laughs> I, I don't know um, But it's certainly kind of one of the things that that people are doing what from your experience are, are kind of good ways of of actually increasing that kind of uh, physical accessibility and and welcomeness to to audiences
1: I think some of the best example I've seen of it are, again, actually in theatres. was, i um, I've seen fantastic uh, where theatres were becoming community hubs. And I think that's a fantastic thing to happen. I've seen the, the Albany in Deptford where they've got, you know, um, Meet Me at the Albany, which I think is their kind of elders lunch club that happens once a week and then they've got their young adults coming in and producing work in the evening they've got heart and soul based there who are a learning disabled arts organization um they've so they've got this kind of they've opened it up to all of these people and as a result you're seeing the cafes being used you're seeing um you're seeing people walking through just to kind of because it feels open and it feels like a space that belongs to them i think I really admired the idea of of open up at the opera house and actually letting people see through the doors. Mm. You know, when you're when you can't see behind the big closed doors, I can see that that is a is a barrier and is a problem. Um, I think just making spaces feel more accessible as well. And it, again, we've constantly got this balance because I I really understand the tradition of opera feeling like a night out and a treat, and that all of the kind of Plush velvet and golden chandeliers are part of that for so many people, um, but it but it is off putting for others, mm-hmm. and that's um, I don't know where the where the balance lies.
0: Yeah, I think think you made a really interesting point there as well, that there's one thing of saying to people, you know, look, you can come in, it's fine. And there's another actually sort of inviting people and getting in different groups of people to actually kind of come into the space. You know, I mean, again, I I don't know about the Royal Opera House, but I get the impression that, yes, they've got a cafe there. But actually, again, how many people are coming in and using that space because they they know about it or they feel as though they, they can do um you know it's one thing to kind of have the offer and another to really proactively be trying to get people in by as you say kind of having different groups of people using the venue um and and, and whatnot so there's there's one thing actually having it and there's another how you promote it to people um yeah. but i mean i would say even as a an opera goer um you know is at the moment physically you know i sometimes approach those doors and think should i be opening them should i be, yeah. should i be coming in um so i think i that, never
1: know which one to try and go through yeah and, and then you don't want to try try be embarrassed and,
0: and then you just leave um and, and they maybe are heavy. that's me i
1: mean i agree they are heavy
0: doors <laughs> um so a really interesting thing to come out of those audience surveys um i mean i don't know if that's true or not or whether he's using it as an excuse to to do something about the doors but um either way um a really interesting point being made there um by uh Stuart, our our favorite pod person um Now, one more kind of weighty issue to touch on uh, this week, which is around uh, La Scala in Milan. Um, They've returned a donation of 3 million euros from the Saudi royal family, Um, to do with ethical reasons uh, about uh, accepting donations. Um, It should have been said as well that this donation came with the caveat that the Saudi culture minister would become a board member at La Scala. This is all part of the recent discussions as well around the Sackler family and their donations to cultural institutes in the UK and abroad. Um, And again, the wider ethical implications around accepting money from these sources. Um, Now, I think it's a a really interesting debate to have. Um, I mean, I'm always kind of interested by this because i'm you know kind of a big football fan as well and in football a lot of the big clubs are um owned by gulf states um you know kind of particularly man city and and psg in paris um and there's you know often a little bit of um kind of moral questioning from from fans and commentators but essentially we kind of accept that these are being used as um kind of puppets for those regimes to kind of promote positive impressions of of the kind of the gulf states around the world um in opera I, i don't know what you think freya but are we just kind of um, that bit more sort of um left wing and, and morally conscious to be kind of kicking up a fuss about these these sorts of things um or actually are we being over um protective of the art form by not accepting these kind of slightly tainted donations. What do you think?
1: I think it's a really hard one and I and I'm also aware I'm probably not um knowledgeable enough on the full extent of the the topic to really to really comment with with enough insight. But I suppose I would just say that Opera and the arts has always been a place where people have been welcomed and where people have been... um, It's always been a space for people fleeing persecution. It's always been a space uh, to talk about the things that matter and to try and confront those issues. And I think that that's a huge strength of opera, that it's a space where anyone can make, where in the arts, our arms are wide open to makers uh singers audiences from all different um backgrounds and that's something that we should be incredibly proud of that i think we should be really proud of and that we should fight for those people that we represent when we're thinking about uh where we take money from so yeah it's it's it is a difficult one and i don't know enough about uh Saudi Arabian politics to, to really go into too much detail but I guess that's just something that that occurs to me.
0: Mm. I mean we must say it's, it's kind of come to a head recently with with the, the, the Sackler certainly but it's been going around for a number of years with you know BP and, and oil sort of sponsorship mm. of, of, of organisations. Uh, I mean kind of from from my point of view and I'm sure lots of people will, will disagree with me but if you know an oil company wants to give a lot of money to the arts and there are no strings attached then then why not do some good with that? Money, rather than rejecting it, especially in such difficult funding climates, um, you know, I think ethics has to play a role in in, in fundraising. But there's, there comes a point where you know, if you can do a lot of a lot of good with money, which you might necessarily not always agree with how it was how it was made, but can be kind of put to good, then maybe there's an argument for for, for taking that. I mean, there's there's one thing, um, I say, kind of uh, the sort of that kind of Gulf state money, and there's another with the Sacklers and BP, which, however, you might disagree with how it was made was made. Um, legally um and you know they are sort of you know trading uh kind of companies and organizations in uh, in the the countries that they donate to so um there are no easy answers with these sorts mm-hmm. of things um but i think i wonder sometimes if we're a little bit too quick to to judge rather than thinking about the actual implications of what what could be done with the the money and um you know i mean simple things like we, we may balk against bp sponsoring the arts but you know how many times a year do you pull up to a bp petrol station to kind of fill up your car um you know same with same with football as well we might balk at um you know the the emirates um sponsoring Manchester city but um I don't see people not turning up to their games or, or watching them on television so um it's a, it's a really interesting point one that's certainly not going away particularly as we said earlier that funding is getting less and less for the arts we're going to be turning to more um places that we might find uh difficult to to accept money from and these conversations are going to keep going so I think it's something we'll certainly return to again on the pod, I think
1: I think uh, just the one the one thing about about this is whether just to play devil's advocate to your to your argument is whether you validate will you whether you validate it by taking that money? Oh, and whether, that's that's absolutely um, the big, the big yeah. question about this. And things. whether and whether that's the idea that enough people say no, we can't accept this money. But you're totally right uh, with BP in the comparison against us getting our petrol there, but not wanting them to fund our latest project i think it's really difficult and i think there's it's about how much you're alleviating someone else's uh moral conscience or you know allowing a company to believe that they do good mm. because they managed to support that project but actually are not holding people to account
0: yeah maybe. Absolutely. Okay. I, I think you know when when those donations you know um change the art that you can do or dictate it you know i think with this la scala one interesting that you know the saudi culture minister was going to be become a board member because of the donation there are some serious questions there um, and certainly with the, the Sackler money you know a lot of it has been their names have been on buildings you know the, the Sackler wing at the, the National Gallery and whatnot because of it um, and it's how much is that donation giving a positive public spin to these um, places and where the money comes from and um, so really interesting moral quandaries there and um, again not something we can solve today but something we'll definitely return to again and again so very much worth thinking about and for our roundup of the opera that you can see on TV, the big screen, and listen to on radio over the next month. OperaVision.eu have got new productions of Kobanashina from Moscow and Anthropocene from Scottish Opera. Got rave reviews when it opened recently, so really intrigued to see this new uh, production, this new opera from Scottish Opera. Uh, On the BBC last week, uh, Janet Baker, in her own words, was on BBC4, a documentary about the great British singer, so do check that out on iPlayer. At the big screen, the Royal Opera House have got a screening of their new production of Faust, the 30th of April, and the Met dialogue of the Carmelites on the 11th of May. Um, I popped to my local view the other week to see Die Velkura from the Met. Uh, Phenomenal production, and they really do know how to do broadcasts at the Metropolitan Opera. So 11th of May, I would heartily recommend popping down to your local cinema to see Carmelites. Uh, Radio has its usual way of weird and wonderful operas. Uh, this month's highlights include Katcha that Olivier award-winning production from the Royal Opera House, La Clemenza di Tita from the Met with Joyce Di Donato in the leading role. Um, however, unfortunately, their Thursday opera matinee programme is currently on holiday, uh, so you're limited to their weekend opera slots. So every month, we bring you a hidden gem, uh, an opera that's rarely performed, but which is worth a rediscovery. Now, this month, I've chosen an opera in response to the uh, terrible events at, at Notre Dame Cathedral, uh, earlier this week. Uh, now, you'll be very disappointed to hear I haven't chosen the mid 90s Disney musical, um, but instead Franz Schmidt's 1914 opera, Notre Dame, uh, based on the same Victor Hugo novel. Uh, it premiered in Vienna and had some success in its early days, but has largely gone unperformed since. Um, there was a revival in 2010, however, in Dresden. It's a romantic opera, um, sort of a, a, an undemanding Richard Strauss, but a far more demanding Johann Strauss, if that kind of puts it musically into some sort of context. Um, there are two recordings available, including a 1988 recording with Dame Gwyneth Jones as Esmeralda. Um, a really passionate work, MSA kind of really... Um, deep into that that romantic kind of uh, passionate music of the early 1900s Um, and for those of you that want to explore it further there's the recordings there's also a uh, vocal score on the website imslp as well if you want to take a look Uh, we're going to now play a short extract from the opera this is the intermezzo uh, the most famous piece from the opera which occasionally is seen on concert programs And to finish off, thank you very much to Linda Farrell 11 on Twitter for pointing this out. Uh, Richard Maidley of Richard and Judy fame is the agony aunt in the Telegraph. And uh, a couple of weeks ago, a lady called Lucy wrote in to Richard to ask him what to do about her quandary. She said, dear Richard, how can I persuade my boyfriend to share my love of opera? She says she's six months into a relationship. It's mostly great, but unfortunately, he hates opera. Opera. Um, she got in some tickets to go and see some, um, and unfortunately, absolutely hated the uh, the experience. He launched into a diatribe about it was betraying their working class roots, and so on and so on. She wants to know: should she carry on trying to persuade him to join her, or go back to going alone and with friends? She doesn't want to feel like this is something that has come between them. Now, Richard responds sympathetically. You know, he he mentions that Lucy has obviously developed this uh, love of opera through going as a child, and this is something new to her boyfriend. Um, he moves on to suggest that maybe they should start with something like The Phantom of the Opera, uh, and then move on to Les Mis, and if that goes well, they could go through to some of the harder operatic stuff. You know, maybe, um, I don't know, uh, Lulu or something uh, like that. Um, now freya if 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 I could bestow you with the power of Richard Madeley, what would you suggest to lucy
1: oh it's it's a it's a heartbreaking one because uh opera obviously makes her heart sing, and that's so lovely um i think uh, I think I would say go and watch those exciting operas that are happening in unusual places and see if that can make any difference to your assumption i think there's so much really exciting small scale opera being done um without all of the um budgets that might make someone uh, feel uncomfortable um and i and i can understand how that might feel really excessive for someone um to go to the opera for the first time uh so i don't know that would be my advice go and watch it in those unexpected places um see then if the stories mean more to you um and and hopefully again just the idea that that if you've seen one opera and you didn't like it that doesn't mean you don't like opera you just gotta try a few things find something that you feel really passionate about that that's going to be a story that interests you go and watch something modern uh you know it doesn't need to be traditional canon just go and um try and find something that's gonna maybe um help ease some of those assumptions
0: I think that's great advice, and, and uh, but at the end of the day, as I always say, sometimes people don't like opera, and that's also fine. But you've got to give it a go. You've got to give it a go. Now, we usually end each episode with an opera quiz. However, unfortunately, uh, one of the panellists that was due to join us this month uh, has been ill today. Uh, so we wish them all the very best. So instead, I'm going to ask Freya if you could please just select one of the many projects that you've worked on before um, that has particularly made an impact uh, with you, just to kind of tell us a little bit about one of those projects that's really um, yeah, kind of made a lasting impact with you that you've worked on.
1: Yeah, so the project I would uh, probably talk about is something I did years ago, right when I would kind of just started out um, with, with directing and, and in an education setting. And it was in Sheffield. I was doing a, a piece with HMDT Music, and it was an opera called Shadow Ball. And um, Shadow Ball was about the integration of uh, black players into the American baseball leagues. And um, we did it in two schools in Sheffield, Um, and the schools that we were working with. It was mainly the children. I mean, the performance was beautiful, but not tuneful. These children were (laughs) utterly um, new, not gonna call them unskilled, they were highly skilled, they were amazing, but they had never done anything like this before and they did not know how to use their voices or how to use their bodies. And they relished every part of the experience so highly we were there for four weeks and seeing the way that those young children transformed, seeing them get on a stage where actually the schools that we were working with, you know, they have a lot of, um, lot of struggles. Um, they were at the time, uh, being forced into Academy status. A lot of, um, children who outside of school, it was the first school. I've done this project several times, but it was the first school where these are eight, eight and nine year olds where I talked about, um, racism and that the children understood what i was talking about because it had happened to them and that they realized that they had been discriminated against and that they wanted to share their experiences being discriminated against there were marginalized communities english as a second language for a huge number of these children and um when they did shadow ball they were special and they were recognized and For being children that maybe think that they're school and that they don't matter as much in the standing of Sheffield generally, to see the joy and pleasure of those young people realising that they can be so much more than they've been led to believe was truly humbling and wonderful. And the fact that all they wanted to do was sing and move and tell stories, um, even though they were definitely learning how to do it every day, um, was incredibly rewarding and humbling and um yeah a highlight for me
0: wonderful and what is opera other than singing moving and making noises i mean that's that kind of sounds of pop opera to me in a, in, a, in a nutshell um that sounds fantastic what a great note to end on um freya thank you so much for joining us um today um we'll hopefully have you back on a, a future pod um is there anything you've got coming up in the near future that you'd quickly like to to plug before we go
1: Oh, so I've got a a lovely thing with the Royal Opera House Thurrock Community Chorus, which is going to be on at the South Bank on the uh, 23rd of June as part of Refugee Week. Um, And that will then also be at Tilbury Cruise Terminal on the 20th of July. I think that's going to be a really exciting and beautiful big scale
0: piece. Thank you very much, uh, Freya, indeed. Thank you, as ever, to Chapel FM and our wonderful sound engineer, Elliot, uh, today. And you can join us again next month. And remember, uh, coming up in August, we've got the live recording at Chapel FM. Go to northernopagroup.co.uk to find out when that's going to be. Uh, Thank you, and goodbye.